What is up, Asymmetry? How y'all doing? Had the chance to sit down with Randy Knight, catch up with him on his national and international adventures. I feel like every time we talk with Randy, we tap into the subject of bonsai, but then there's just so much more. He's doing really radical stuff as his way of life. And uh, and it's refreshing to see somebody and talk to somebody who lives uh, with such a, a zest and a zeal for adventure. Anyways, uh, we break down Sasquatch, Kyrgyzstan uh, trips upcoming, and uh, and always circle back to that common subject of Yamadori that we all love so much. But uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Randy Knight. Is it true that you initially went to Ashland to be part of the Shakespeare Festival? Festival? <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I dominated the stage and it just didn't feel right. How, <laughs> how, ran, how random is that, though? How random is that, though? Ashland, Oregon is like the epicenter of the Shakespeare uh, world in North America. Totally. Why? Is it still? Oh, yeah. Oh, I it's think so. huge. It's hard to get tickets to go to it. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. When I was there, if you were a student, you could get like half-rate tickets and... There was always extra seats. There was like five theaters there at one time, counting the Brit. Why? I, I don't understand. Why Why in Ashland, Oregon? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. There's a real, uh, I think one of the, I think it's one of the Koch brothers uh, bought <laughs> an old like Western mining town, like ghost town in Colorado and basically redid the entire thing. So it's like a functioning town now, but nobody lives there. I think it's just his property. He goes there, all the old saloons, everything. It's like Neverland Ranch version two. It's like, well, I mean, it would it would be like rebuilding. <laughs> Less creepy. It would be like rebuilding to- the movie Tombstone. You know, like Huckleberry. Yeah, 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 yeah. I would love to go see that though. Imagine how fun that would be. So this is in Colorado. That's what I understand. Yeah. I've, I, I think I think you could probably look. Mariah in the Wild, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mariah the Wild Project. That's right. Tombstone Edition. That's there right. are a lot of old ghost towns in Colorado. It's cool. There's a lot in Nevada too. That's true, huh? I I have not. A lot of the mining towns, kind of more. I've not spent yeah. as much time in Nevada. Yeah. Mining at that's they're all mining towns, I guess. I drove. Uh, I drove. Uh, 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 overnight from Portland to uh, Las Vegas to drop off uh, a tree in Las Vegas. And uh, at like 3.34 in the morning, I was passing through White Pine, Nevada. And yep. uh, they were all of, the, all, of the, uh, all of the people going to hunt uh, big cats were at the gas station with their dogs. <laughs> and they were going, going to get themselves a cougar. This was in the winter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was in the winter. That was the other. I thought you've you've said something about this before because we, of course, we were living there at the time. Uh, and I thought you also said you went down with like just a t shirt, and shorts, or exactly. something. Exactly. That, that was that was that was the lowest. That was one of my lower moments of intelligence because I I drove my truck to the airport. I rented a car at the airport. Drove to Las Vegas in the middle of winter, and I turned off at. Uh, um, uh, Twin Falls, Idaho. You when know, went across over. It was uh, yeah. I don't know, ten degrees outside. I had on shorts, flip flops, and a t-shirt. 
want to be and, comfortable for the drive. And I did not see another car for six or seven hours. You fit right in the truck stop. <laughs> <laughs> People were looking at me like, friends what is wrong with off. you? And I was like, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> if it's I ran out of gas, if I hit one of the, you know, several hundred uh, elk that I saw, I would have been totally dead. Yeah. I would have been dead. <laughs> Deadzo. Dunzo. I don't know. That Froze was crazy. Death on the side of the road. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Hit, hit a rock the wrong way and popped a tire. I would have been toast because there's no gas out there either. No. It's nuts. Yeah, you got to hit everyone. See, but I like that. I, I think I was thinking on the way in what, you know, what I was going to talk with you about. You go to these far remote places uh, just for the simple thrill of adventure. And where are you headed soon? You're headed to... Uh, uh, oh, in the end of September, Kyr- I'm going to Kyr- Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan, there we go. Yeah, Kyrgyzstan. And that is north of Afghanistan, south of Russia, and on the western border of China. Yeah. To do what? Hunt Ibex. Uh-huh. We're going to go run around the mountains at 13,000 feet and look for this really cool goat that's got great big horns. Yeah. And uh, we're going to do that for five days. Have you hunted Ibex before? I've never even seen one. Oh, wow. I mean, I've seen pictures. Yeah. Uh, this is just something that was affordable, and this is out there a little bit. Not a lot of people go there. And I'm, I'm going to turn 62 there. I'm pretty excited about it. Oh, wow. And get myself in good shape and uh, go have fun. And then I, I know that at the end, we're going to have like a week in a place called Bishkek, waiting for a flight back out and trophies to be prepared. And I don't know. There might be... Whatever goes on in a place like that. Yeah. Damn. Um, yeah. You do that for the adventure, though, huh? Fun. You do it for the adventure. Yeah. I mean, mm. I applied to, to go a lot of different places to hunt these things, but um, y- you never get drawn. It, that's in southern New Mexico in the Florida Mountains. Um, yeah. I like to go to places that nobody else has been. Yeah. Who, else is, who else has been to Kyrgyzstan? Unless you roll with people that haven't insane amounts of money and can afford, you know, $40,000 sheep hunts. And Ibex is not expensive. Yeah. Yeah, but, so, it's, yeah, but still, I mean, it, it, I feel like even even in those remote places, like, yeah, no, there's not a lot of people that are going to be like, that's what I'm going to go do with my time and money, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> and I get to spend a day in Istanbul on the way home. I've never been there. I think that's cool. That does sound Istanbul cool. Istanbul sounds cool. I've, fl- I've flew, uh, flew through Istanbul and I thought I, I would like to come back here. I've heard that you could spend a month touring Turkey and then plan to go back twice more. I, 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 I would really like to see Turkey. Yeah. That place intrigued me. I didn't realize how much though that whole region of the world, I didn't realize how high the mountains were and how much snow they get, uh, in the, in the middle East. Some of those countries that have higher elevations up in Af- Afghanistan and stuff, talking to friends that were in the military, like, I guess the mountains of Afghanistan have tremendous Yamadori potential. I, I oh, have seen YouTube videos of uh, ranger teams working horseback on these crazy trails and seeing stuff hanging off the walls. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, there's there's trees there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy trees. <clears throat> crazy trees. Interesting stuff. Is that what you're going to fill up your extra week with? <laughs> A little collecting? <laughs> you know, I bet there will be some drinking and I'll learn a little bit of language and I'm going to eat a lot. 
some exotic foods that I've never even heard ever thought about. Yes. Mm-hmm. Who knows? And that's part of the that's part of the draw, right? What do you do with the week in a place where you can't speak the language and very little English? And it's like, huh, I'm in. It, you can't really get hurt there. Um, See, it's not it's not a military country. In fact, we've I just was three days ago filling out paperwork for two hours. Um, I have to tell the serial number of my gun, my scope, how many shells I'm taking in. They're super strict about it, and I had a hard time getting a form that was that was going to be dated properly, so I could get my gear back in the country. It's mm. called the forty four fifty seven, and it was going to lead to problems. I was going to lose my gear, but I was supposed to have had all that information in six weeks ago because it's, you know, it's although it's not Russia, it was part of the Russian conglomerate at one point in time. Everything just moved slowly there. Wow. <clears throat> Nobody has guns hmm. except bad guys. Well, the government. Oh. And you <laughs> are take- those, the, those are different things? No, they're they're the same actually and this is <laughs> I this guess example. that was the the long point I was making. <laughs> <laughs> you'll be fine. Don't worry, you'll be fine. Now, you know Randy Randy's the first person and of course this seems commonsensical after you told it to me, but when you travel, you take like a like a kit of medications and things in the event that you had an emergency because when you go to these places it's not like you're going to have you know any sort of way to manage infections or you know bad shit that could happen that fundamental antibiotics if you take some precautionary measures you can take care of yourself i never thought about that yeah like oh when i when i travel i should have i should have some things that can basically get you through tough situations till you can get home or get back to beyond the shorts and the flip-flops yeah (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly and then you know what ended up happening is i came home and i told lime about that and he's like oh yeah man i always drive with two sleeping bags in my car and i was just like (laughs) you know yeah i guess i guess having a sleeping bag in your car makes sense why do you need two He's from Michigan. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like really cold. Like there really the cold. You might have to double up. Yeah, two might not be enough. That's funny. They find a little popsicle the next morning. That's funny. So, <laughs> so what do you take with you when you go when you're going to this place? How do you prepare for something like that? So this place, I haven't thought about it much, but I have primarily. It used to be Cyprio was for like um, Montezuma's Revenge, mm-hmm. um, but now. My doctors here a year ago, I was going to go to Peru a year ago and that trip fell apart. Um, but they gave me something new, mm-hmm. but that basically, uh, it, it's when you travel <clears throat> in subs in third world places, it's only a matter of time till you eat something inappropriate. Yeah. And when you, if Pepto-Bismol and some of the simple stuff doesn't cut it, you need something better. Otherwise, if it happens early in the trip and you're in the jungle, for five days, there's there's no way out. You're just going to be laid up in bed. And I saw that in my very first trip down there, a guy that had been in Guyana three different... He'd been in the Amazon before we were in Guyana. Mm. He was an experienced traveler and he didn't have medicine and he spent the entire trip in bed and uh, puking and crapping his pants out, you know, at the window of the Palapa in the jungle. Jeez. And he, yeah, five days and it was miserable. It's like, Wow. Don't let that happen. Jeez. So that's a big one, indigestion. Yeah. And then uh, I think I've got altitude sickness pills. 
I have a health. In- <laughs> I am on whatever the uh, afford. I'm on affordable care, uh-huh. and so they actually. When I tell them I'm going to travel, they actually make an appointment with me to talk to their travel organization and they interview me and talk about what I've done, what I've had. They look at my record and they they overwhelm me with pills. So I would have to look to see all the shit they sent me last year. They send it to you? <clears throat> they're, just, they're just like, here you go. Yeah. Wow. Um, affordable care works really, you know, I'm an Indian. Yeah. I don't, well, it, it works out really well for me. Hmm. It helps to make my early retirement possible. There you go. Yeah. Wow, interesting. So I've got stuff that I don't even know what it's for, but it was a lot of it was high altitude and jungle because yeah. I was in Peru, I was going to be high and low. And uh, so I think almost all of this will just carry over to this trip. Mostly I'll be high here. Yeah. And what so, what are they, what do you So mosquitoes, for? some places you need to be aware of- uh, Malaria. Malaria. And in the old days, even 20, even 10 years ago, there was one that used to give people- what they called the nightmares, like night horror. And so anybody that ever had that simply wouldn't take those pills anymore because when you have it, it's like not cool. Um, the but pills others, gave you nightmares? Yeah, periodically oh. and randomly. Jeez. And uh, But now there's apparently some new one again. <laughs> some dark, that's, some dark vo- <laughs> that's some dark voodoo stuff right there. I had no idea. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. I went down to the jungle all the last three trips. I didn't take anything with them and, of course, sorry to all the doctors out there, but doctors and nurses are hypo, hypochondriacs in general. Yeah. They uh, they always expect and plan for the worst. Planning for the worst is okay, but they're like, wow, no, you, no, there's malaria in the jungle. You can't go there. It's like nobody take, you get down there, nobody takes some medicine if they have it because nobody wants the night war yeah. in the middle of the jungle and it's going to mess your trip up. <laughs> so if you get, <laughs> you go there to catch fish, not to uh, panic and freak out all night long. But if you take, but if you get malaria, you can't start taking medication and cure it while you're out there. I mean, you you got it. You're going to have to deal yeah, with you it. Wouldn't, you wouldn't actually know about it until later. It ah. doesn't strike you immediately. Oh, it doesn't. Okay. Yeah. My mom, when we went to Nicaragua to uh, visit my sister, when she lived on the Nicaraguan Honduran border, it was 10 hours from Managua. I mean, it was like out in the middle of nowhere and she got dengue fever twice. She almost died the first time, but there was nowhere for her to go. You know, and then we got out there and my sister's like, hey, don't don't drink the water, you know. And first thing my mom does is brush her teeth and drink some water. And <laughs> oh, for, no. for seven for the seven of the ten days we were there, she I didn't even see my mom. She was just either in the outhouse or in bed. She was crushed. It was it was horrible. I felt so bad for her. Oh man. But I thought about that if you have to be functioning in a country where you can't speak a language and you're by yourself. I mean, I was with my mom and we were staying with my sister. You know, we we, we could weather that storm. If you're out in the middle of Kyrgyzstan in the mountains and all of a sudden you're like in bad shape, are these are these two gentlemen going to be yeah, what if they just backing you out or something? Like there's a real opportunity to get left out there. How how would I know? Never, never met him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, I, it's it's pretty radical what you put yourself. They, they might keep my pocket knife. <laughs> That's interesting. That's great. Um, so you're excited to go? I'm jacked. I was actually a little bit uh, apprehensive about it for a little bit, and then uh, why? Uh, it turns out that it didn't have anything to do with the trip. It had to do with paper deadlines. It it turns out that I don't react well to like punching a time clock. You know, uh-huh. when I used to work in the mills, 
in college and after high school. And this is the same thing. You must have your paperwork in by X amount of time. It's like, oh, I breached the, I, yeah, I always struggled with it. And it's like, well, I wrapped that up two days ago. And it's like, ha, huh, well, fuck, I'm ready almost. All I got to do is pack my clothes. Well, actually, I still got to get a scope and sight my rifle in. And I got a ton of stuff to do. Mostly I got to get into shape. Yeah. The last thing I want to do is get over there and be, get altitude sickness. Yeah. Um, cause I know, I know that we've got ponies to ride, but they, horses can't go everywhere. Right. And those guys will probably want to go places and horses that frighten me. So I'll just suck it up, pucker a little bit and I'll be in the back. Actually, I bet they put me in the middle. Mm. <laughs> They're going to look at the old white man and say, oh, that, that dude's in big trouble. Yeah. Fortunately, I've been in hunting camps before. I won't be the weak link. <laughs> there will be several other members they look at and say, huh, I, I'll, I'll be okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Are you a, are you a competent uh, horseman? <coughs> I don't Actually, think, I am. I don't I think I've ever talked with you about this, like what your horse riding skills. There's never been a reason to. I haven't been in a horse since Costa Rica in about 2008. But I spent a, a week or 10 days on horse out of uh, Yellowstone and Elk Hunt in the 90s in the mm. snow and steep frozen ground. Turns out I'm pretty comfortable on a horse. Uh-huh. You know, when you see the Western guys riding across the, the field and their hats don't fall off and they just hold the reins loosely. Yeah. I can't do that. I can't even <laughs> keep my baseball hat on. I, I don't know how that's done, but for the movies, they're cheating. I just know it. Yeah. Got that sucking <laughs> boot on there. Well, they have chin straps, but you never see the John Wayne never has chin straps. No, it's on, always right? lo- it's always loose and very romantically like, you know, uh-huh. moving in the wind. I've never had the galloping horse experience where I was at one with the horse. This is more like stepping over fallen logs on frozen ground yeah. and it's forty five degrees and you're looking where the horse is stepping, it's like, oh, yeah, these these things are actually pretty pretty handy. I guess I get yeah. I guess you'd probably have to be running for the law or chasing somebody as the law to have that moment that you see in so many westerns, right? <laughs> right, just like the the horse on a dead run. You got to be wanting to get some Pony Express. Oh, there you go. The Postal Service, yeah, those it, guys are hardcore. Hardcore. Western <laughs> Union. Hardcore. I understand the fascination. This goes back to the Western town in Colorado. I get it. I'm into it. What about you? Have you been on horses much? No, I haven't spent a lot of time on horses. Uh, We used to ride horses periodically in the summer times. We would go up into the higher Alpine or something and ride horses with friends who had them or for one reason or another. Uh, and I've had a few experience on horses. One, we ran into a uh, uh, black bear mama, mama with cubs, and the horses got super spooked out and started bucking, and a bunch of people got <laughs> got uh, ejected off the horse. <laughs> I was able to stay on mine. And then uh, I had another experience where they stepped on a hornet's nest, uh, and, and a bunch of the horses started getting stung and started freaking out, and that was un- unpleasant. And after that, I was like, you know, I'm pretty good with horses. What about your dad? Your dad, my dad rode in deluxe, rode right? rodeo. Yeah, I mean yeah. he was he was the heel team roper, and he used to team rope steers. So he's all he was all about horses. My parents used to have horses, uh, and when I was born, they decided that they they had to change their lifestyle. So, so I was the turning I was the turning point of no horses. That's what I've recognized. 
But I think it I think it'd be super cool to go into the mountains. You know, Gary Wharton from uh the Tri Cities used to used to ride in pack trains on with mules and horses and go into the mountains hunting and just exploring and stuff. And he said it was he said it was the best mode of transportation. He he th- he thought it was pretty rock and roll. Hmm. Yeah, and I thought that was really interesting. He said that you know there were always sketchy times being in really narrow places and and stuff like that that you had to be really calculated with. Because I think about it, it's like well, a horse isn't going to put itself in a position to, to to die or to fall off of something. But apparently they do. Really? Yeah, they walk along those crazy steeps. Well, you've been in the mountains where you've got like scree and stuff and. It's like a 45 or 60 degree slope and there's a trail. Yeah. Wild game walks across it. The the packers that I've seen typically will use mules. Uh-huh. And those they I think a mule is way more sure footed. It's more sure footed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But they'll they'll commonly have both in the pack stream. And cuz I know when we hunted out of Yellowstone there was a couple places that we had to traverse every other day. Mm. And the guy would make us get out get off the horse and walk. Hmm. And I would say why? I said, well, sometimes the horse slips. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I guess my, I, I had a, I had an inner ignorant impression of that. And, and Gary had said, no, man, those horses fall off those cliffs. <laughs> you know, like bad things happen. And when Ira and I, did I tell you about this? When we went and saw the bristle cones on Mount Charleston outside of Las Vegas and there were wild horses up there. Uh, uh-uh. Oh, that was pretty wild. That was, th- that was what made it. That was what made it truly surreal. Because the bristle cones back down, yeah. The bristle cones <laughs> up at the top of of Mount Charleston are, are are cool. They're they're old growth, impressive, really gnarly, ancient bristle cones. Uh, but seeing the wild horses walking amongst those bristle cones was like a different planet kind of vibe for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was super interesting, and right. the fact that you could see the Las Vegas Strip. Past a three thousand year old tree in the distance was also a little bit, a little bit of a mind bender. That was a little bit tough to digest. Make sense of all of that. Trying to pet those horses was a lot tougher than I anticipated. Ira thought that they were domesticated <laughs> enough Come for on. him to walk Here up to. Come this on, freaking wild horse! I'm. I was surprised you didn't get kicked in the head or something. For real. Did you get close? <laughs> I got pretty close. You touched it. I touched one. Ugh. Yeah. And it did not go well. Did no. The, the, these horses didn't have brands on them, right? No, <laughs> no, yeah, but no, but, no ropes around there. No. But people say no, some no, of them no, get no. people. people like I talked to some of my buddies in, in Vegas that have horses, and they said that uh, it does happen where people just leave their horses out there in that part of the valley or whatever. Just say in the 08 recession, it was a Western phenomena. People to abandon your horses, horses. yeah, just because of the cost to maintain a yeah, horse. People. Horse is expensive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, and I bet, yeah, losing losing the land to take <clears throat> care of your horse on, it's like, what are you going to, where are you going to take it? Just put it in a trailer and take, apparently down the street, you just take a horse into your backyard. Right here? Right on, right, right, right off of, uh, have you seen the horses in that like normal? Right across from where I used to live? Yes, exactly. Those are the, do you know them? I don't know anything their, about their last them. last name is? Savage. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> they're hoard, they're hoarders. The fact that they have horses in their yard, normal like residential a, a yard, normal residential lot with horses in it, I was like, is that? Would the county allow that? Is that legal? Is that something? It, it is. 
Is but it? That's super common that people have too many horses on too small a lot. Oh man, they just and you see what they've done to it within three months. Yeah, the poor the 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 poor horses <clears throat> just trying to get enough like grass to survive on that. that that's thing. not enough ground for one horse, and they've got three. Or four. Yeah, it's crazy. Anyways, they're, the, they're a special case. Where's the place family? you were saying <laughs> earlier? Um, they won't listen looking, to this podcast. No, we're not. It's, it's okay. <laughs> Where you were looking to maybe buy a place that had horse property in a barn or something that was a couple minutes from here. Uh-huh. Which way is that? <laughs> is that that's back? on Millard Road? Mm. Yeah, down by uh, by the horse farm. There was an L shaped lot that the ex that the current mayor had inherited, and they were selling it, and uh, that had a giant horse barn with maybe twenty stalls in there. That was actually one of the fallbacks because they thought I'd get canceled on insurance first thing off the bat when I tried to burn the horse barn, yeah. which probably wouldn't burn <laughs> properly, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> I'd have still have all it. the metal left behind. Yeah, and I, they, <laughs> half of it would be left and I'd be forced to rebuild or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what do you even do with a horse barn? <clears throat> Just the money to re rehab something like that. Although it sounds like Todd's kind of figuring it out. Didn't he get a... Todd has a big property. Yeah, yeah. we're going to talk to him here pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. That'll be interesting to hear how, because I'm pretty sure his workshop's in a old horse barn. It is. Did you see the aerial photos of his, yeah. the lot? Yeah. That's what I saw too. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting stuff. Good on him though, taking it on. Do you feel like Yamadori collecting is changing for you? You feel like things are things are shifting or there's a evolution of Yamadori collecting or? Yeah. What's the life of a Yamadori collector in 2022? So this year, I think we chatted about this generally. My son worked with me and we've made four trips. We've got a fifth one to go. And this is like end of, this is July 1st. This is rabbit, rabbit day. Mm-hmm. By the way, if you say rabbit, rabbit, on the first thing of the first day of every month, this was an Indian tradition. You should bring you good luck all month. Like you wake up, it's the first day of the... Well, sometimes you forget about it. And so if you say rabbit, rabbit, any day, I call it good. Uh Who can remember all these rules? (laughs) Although I did this morning. (laughs) Can you imagine the discipline of like every first thing you say when you wake up or say you pass midnight, you hit rabbit, rabbit. You go to bed at 11, you wake up at 8 a.m. Regardless of what is going on, rabbit, rabbit, first thing out of your mouth on the first day of every month. You do get... I, that's ba- you, you do get to do this 12 times a year. So, I mean, it is like a pattern recognition thing. Yeah. And <laughs> if you hit it all 12 times, you you feel like you should be rewarded for something in yeah, terms of the yeah, universe, absolutely. right? Like, I did that. Who does that? I did that. I did that. Me. Me. <laughs> okay. Anyways, so, Yamadori <laughs> collecting. Um, so, this year I collected... We collect a very small number of trees compared to the past. My business, the business is changing. We've talked about this. That your our business is are always going to be in in flux and changing, and some predictable, mostly unpredictable. Are people's wants, are people's expectations of of Yamadori changing? From your perspective, like what you're feeling, yeah, the clientele is changing. You know, a lot of the what I would call the old guard that were with me early on and in the beginning. Well, one, I should back up. There's always the people that chase the newest collector, mm-hmm. the, the newest flavor. Um, and so those people, but it's the same crowd. They, they vacillate back and forth. Um, 
and those are primarily price oriented. I guess it feels to me like my customers right now are looking for a higher end, special, big. I I've got a lot of a dozen people to say, if you get something great, call me. Mm-hmm. That has kind of changed. In the past, it was always there, but now you've been here what ten years? Yeah, twelve. Yeah. Twelve. Uh huh. What people consider a great tree now is very different than what they considered 10 years ago, right? Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, and people are better at seeing the difference between big and good or massive and good. Cause, and there are some people that still just want massive trees. If you can get an average massive tree that has more, generates more interest than a great shoheen or a great 15-inch tree. Yeah. Um impact. But that's changed a lot just from the perspective of people being physically willing to handle those big trees. That's changed a lot in my mind. Because there was a point where what you were looking for was medium-sized trees of a high caliber. That was that was sort of the wheelhouse. And now people are asking and saying, Randy, can you, can you collect big trees, big, impressive trees? And it's like, Pfft. I mean, I guess you can, but what a shift in six, eight-year narrative arc of people's expectations, it seems, or, or desires. And it could be just a, a shifting clientele because mm-hmm. um, they still want all those manageable 30-pound trees, um, and they're out there. But especially when I talk about junipers, I think um, the demand is just monster trees, which I'm happy to do, but so many things have to go right. Yeah. And we got a couple this year. I, and I showed you one video of that one and the location. How do, can we actually get it? Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a beauty that we saw on the very first trip that's like, wow, that's six foot around. And I have a dozen people lined up for that. <clears throat> but that's got to be a fall collect. Mm-hmm. It's going to be tiny roots. It's going to take an entire trailer. I might even have to rent a Penske truck just for that tree to come home. It's like, and it, but it's manageable. I mean, two people, it's, it doesn't weigh a ton, but just the deadwood features on it from one end to the other are so impressive that it's like, wow, this has got to be a special trip. Yeah. So anytime you're a thousand, you got to do this a thousand miles from home, then it's just more planning, more hassle. You don't want to do something like that for something that might die Yeah. or might have a customer. So this year, my business towards the central and northeast part of the country appears to be winding down, um, <clears throat> which means there's a, lots and lots of the little trees that was typically what I sold back there. I just walked by them this year. And mm-hmm. I did that last year too. And it feels good. And it felt really good last year. It's like, huh less things to water, less things to handle. <clears throat> when you look for a good tree, you see lots of average trees. Right. Um, and finding good trees in the right country is fairly easy. The problem is getting most of the good trees don't come out right. Right. You never you, you never walk up to a show tree that's uh, three feet around. It's like, oh, that's a coca food tree and just yard on it. It pulls out in your hand with a perfect right. root thing. A little carrot, pop. Yeah, no, that... <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what dreams are made made of. That happens never. Yeah. Never. 
you uh, sometimes you casually walk up to a fifteen dollar tree and you kind of wiggle it and it comes out and you're just like ah oh, fuck <laughs> now now I have to now take I have it. to take it now it's yeah. mine it was just curiosity <laughs> that I made me wiggle it now I got to take it do you, do you feel pressure like uh, the the this big juniper that you're talking about you do you, does that change the nature of collecting because it used to be you would go collect and it was your eye on the mountain and you would find good material and then you would hope people would find it appealing now people are are asking for things that you know exist. Uh, does that does that change the experience of collecting for you? Yeah, yeah. So interestingly, I've got I got a list of a dozen people that have special wants. I haven't filled one of them this year in four trips. Yeah, it's crazy. Huh. Um, a big this, a, a twisted contorted that, uh, a monster this. And it's like, huh. One, I I have plans to fulfill one of those, a, a really beautiful Engelman. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he can afford it because it's a little nicer than he was planning. Um, and I and they did find a bristle cone that I'll get later on that mm-hmm. will fulfill a special niche. So maybe I'll get two. Yeah. But there's a bunch of other things like a giant driveway ponderosa. I, I, I used to see them all the time. I just haven't found one lately. Yeah. Um, or anything that I could actually get back down to the truck. Uh, sometimes you see these things and say, there's there's no way we're going to get over that lip with that. There's only two of us. Right. And they don't make drones that big yet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they make helicopters. Apparently they make helicopters <clears throat> that big though. I would love to do that once. I just, so many things have to go right because I feel like I, in this day and age, I'm likely to get in trouble for using a helicopter. I. I feel kind of like, like the corner crossing we talked about the other day. Yeah. It's legal, but you're going to wind up with just a shit storm. A lot of eyes on you. Yeah. A lot Everybody of eyes with a cell you. phone out yeah. there thinks that you can't do anything. If, if you're not riding a bike or walking on a trail, you, you can't just walk through the woods. What are you doing out there? That's like National Forest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm that's, thinking that's specifically of Colorado. Yeah. I I was uh, we went to we went to Yosemite when Tom Benda and and uh, Stone Monkey and Thor were here for the Triskelly thing and I was um, I was pretty mesmerized by the fact that Yosemite was not super nerfed you know like all the cor- all the sharp corners weren't weren't protected at Yosemite you walk right off the edge of a cliff there and and nobody was going to do anything about it oh and I just thought. That's awesome. Not that, not that you know, not that there's the potential for people to get hurt. It's awesome that they didn't take the wild out of a place like that because you could so easily put guardrails up around the entire thing and just really domesticate a wild space. And it's like, yeah, it would crush it. It would, it would tear the the profundity of the place out of it by. Yeah, right that. on the cliff, overlooking the waterfall. Yeah. It was like you could get right on top of you it. Stand, you you could jump right into the waterfall and go right <laughs> off that cliff, and nobody would stop you. Get your hand good, off my belt. I've never been there, but good for them because, uh, as you know, in most places we play to the lowest common denominator. You, exactly. Go to Multnomah Falls and the Columbia Gorge, it's like there's guardrail the entire way. It's like, yeah. this is not a hiking experience. This is like... What, put gravel at the mall yeah yeah i mean the fact that you can climb in yosemite and climbers die all the time and they have rescue crews that go recover the remains and stuff and it's like 
this you can use this to do that and it's like wow okay all right it just gave me just gave me a a really positive perspective that there are still you know you're talking about going to places people don't go you're talking about sort of people's perception of the natural environment and what you do can do should do what's appropriate to do in the natural environment i just thought like for a place that's heavily trafficked i was really impressed that they hadn't made it too safe to have ruined it you know did you guys have a hard time getting permits to just go into the park we showed up at the entrance to the park as early as we physically could have woken up because we we went we drove a lot of miles in a very short period of time um and they said you might be able to get in uh and i don't know if they cut off uh daily admissions letting people into the park but um we were able to find a uh, parking spot a parking spot (laughs) and we were in pretty much a a i mean it was like a uh a horde of people for the first mile of hiking and then it started to thin out the further you went up the less people and by the by the time we were at the six six mile mark or something towards the top they're really there really weren't that many people and we were able to find like a spot by an incredible river uh, where we couldn't see anybody, hear anybody. It felt like we owned the place. It was pretty awesome. Hmm. Yeah, it was cool. It was good. I, I It was inspiring. I, I think going in the wintertime is the, is the key point if you want to be not around people. So we were there literally 12 days after you guys were there and you needed a permit just to cross Sonora Pass between 8 and 4 p.m. What? You couldn't, there was like no commuter traffic from one side of the mountains to the other. God, we drove, That's wild. We drove, we drove right, right we, through there. We drove yeah, you right up to over, apply one or drive after four. We drove right up over Sonora Pass, <clears throat> but I guess I did see, I did see that for the bristle cones after like uh, whatever that was, May 15th or something, you were going to have to have uh, a permit or a pass to get over Tioga. You were going to have to have a permit or a pass. So I guess... I think that literally is something new. Uh, there was nobody at the one, ranger, yeah. Yeah. the one ranger station that was not attended when we went through. So maybe that's a, was attended when you went through there. No, there was just huge signs that you know those the blinking lights on that said if you don't have a permit, you're not getting through until four p.m. at Sonora. And uh, we'd met a friend down there who had said that they were super red on. You couldn't stop on the. It's not Sonora, but it's the. I think it's Tioga Pass, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no pulling over on the side of the road. Hugely forbidden. What? Since COVID, yeah. And I guess they were enforcing it. It's like, because I, I, I had plans. Tioga, Tioga was wasn't open yeah. when we went. Yeah, no. Uh, so whichever open. the one that crosses over Into the Yosemite. north end of, yeah. That's yeah, Tioga. That's Tioga. Okay. Yeah, it, so it was, we didn't go it was, through it, that way. It opened the week after we were there. Okay. I wanted to go over Tioga. So that was the one that we couldn't get over. We were on Sonora and the passes to the north. I got you. Okay. Yeah. Um, but because it's, I was that far down and we'd seen the bristle cones in the White Mountains for the first time. I thought, well, we're here. We should go do it. What'd you think about that? What what is that? What does seeing trees like that do for you? Anything? So honestly, um, I I tried to not make it be a letdown, but it was. Mm. I've seen pictures and less, I'm around a lot of old trees and I'm in high mountains a lot. Not that it wasn't cool. One of the interesting things was we were there most of the day and only saw four other cars. You go to the Patriarch's Grove or you stay in Shulman's Grove? The down? Patriarch. You it, did. We could get close to it and there was snowfall. And so we wandered around out there and looked for Indian. We looked, 
found some broken arrowheads and just poked around and looked at, wandered through stuff and saw that they even had the dead trees with the tags mm-hmm. that were the little plugs on there with dates. It was kind of cool. Um, it was interesting. But when you talk about impressive trees, the uh, old sequoias to the north of there and the passes, mm-hmm. some of those, in my opinion, were spectacular. You're talking about the the giant sequoias? Uh, not sequoias. I should, um, Sierras. Oh. You know, the ones, Sierras that are, they come in all different shapes, but yeah. 20 feet tall and 10 feet around at the base and just like fire plugs and yeah. old. And those were more inspiring to me than the bristle cones. Interesting. I, everything about them just... It's like, wow, that's a tree. Yeah. And I don't I don't mean to, to pee on the bristle cones, but being able, I don't know which tree was 4,700 years old, but looking at trees that are 4,000 years old still has a certain um, impressiveness about it, right? Oh, it's yeah. It's like, wow, that's the oldest thing on the planet. Although I understand they think they found something in Chile, a cypress that might be older. Apparently, yeah, it'll be interesting to see because it was my understanding that they had found uh, a fifty-two hundred-year-old bristle cone. It has not been, it has not been widely published, uh, but I do believe there is a, a paper out there, and it might be awaiting peer review or something. But there's like a you know the quest yeah. for to have the oldest thing is I, like it, that's exactly so, right. When I heard about the chili tree, I thought, oh, there will be all sorts of people that. Oh, it's, just uh, it's it. hotly contested. Yeah. yeah, that whole thing. I do just want to buffer Randy's impression of the of the bristle cones because um, when you went to <laughs> when you went to Italy and you came back, and you're like, yeah, Rome kind of sucked. Honestly, the Colosseum. I, I didn't. I've never been to Rome. Wait, you told me the Colosseum was like less than impressive. Oh no, I've never been there. I've only been to Venice. And, oh, and then. Uh, Whatever the town is where Otzi the Iceman is. Oh, okay. I, I thought I, you'd made a comment. <laughs> I thought you'd made a comment that you'd been to the Coliseum and you were like, I got to tell you, the Coliseum, no way, big deal. way overrated, way overrated. That's what came to mind when you're like, the bristle cones, eh, eh. I, no, I was happy to go see the bristle cones and I am jaded. I'll be the first one to admit that. Oh, I'm you're totally jaded. Yeah, you're totally jaded. And I, I know that. The Sierra Junipers are, are freaking awesome though. They're an impressive thing. They were wildly endless in configuration. And they, interestingly enough, they depict age to me way better than a bristle cone. Yeah. The bristle cones look relatively healthy, even the old ones. Um, On a sad side note, I heard a story, I don't know if it's true, that several years ago, a researcher studying the bristle cones uh, misinterpreted something and chainsawed the oldest one Mm -hmm. and killed it. And it was a 6,000-year-old tree. Uh, yeah, that's correct. It that, is true. That was uh, way back in the fifties or sixties. Oh, yeah, and that was when they—that was when everybody was like, because I think they had estimated the bristle cones to be old, but that nobody had any comprehension. And when that he was a grad student who got who broke his coring bit off in a bristle cone, and the somehow he got a chainsaw from the ranger station <laughs> which means they gave it to him to cut right. the tree down they cut it down and he counted the rings he just passed away oh he just passed away a few years ago he lived his entire life without following him the guy that cut down the oldest I'll living bet, tree i'll bet he was all about those trees and i bet it haunted him he was probably all about those trees after that i believe he changed his field of su- study to salt flats i don't know that for a fact but i i 
believe I read that somewhere that he had to get out of dendrology altogether <laughs> after that because it was just yeah I would think that there would have been <clears throat> it wouldn't be as bad as if you did that today yeah that was today you probably get strung up uh you would your life would be over today somehow socially or who knows you you, you could move to Kyrgyzstan yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could go study. There's ancient tree. There are still so many ancient trees uh, in these places mm-hmm. that not many people know about, though. Too, it's like finding this tree in Chile. You know, it's yeah. If it's been there for five thousand years, the world just heard about it, and it's 2022. The natural world's got a ton of stuff that's uh, unexplored or unknown. The locals probably know about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they probably don't want people to know about it. And so, so trees are easier to hide. On a side note, Sasquatch doesn't exist. Uh, I am asked, you'd be shocked at how often I'm... There's a lot of evidence. No. <laughs> there are a few credible papers out there that we've uh, accessed, and we would agree to disagree, Randy. That's right. <laughs> I am asked that question a lot. That might, that might be like one of the... the what? Yeah. People ask you that question? Commonly. Like, what do you think about Sasquatch? Have you ever seen one? Have you seen signs? No kidding. You're out. You're and out. They're not all, a lot. But, but when people hear what they do, it's like, oh, you walk around the bonsai. These are people that don't do bonsai or bonsai people? Both. Both. That's it, It's just kind of interesting fun. That's really it's disappointing. disappointing. <laughs> that's, the bar's just been lowered. So he's like, wow, these are great trees, Randy. Um, let me just... Have you ever seen Sasquatch? Yeah, while I have your what, attention for or a moment. Or what do you think about that? While we're talking, while we're on the subject of walking around the woods, Sasquatch. Really, really yes interesting, no. Juniper. Uh, tell me more about Bigfoot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's an interesting uh, delineation, too, because uh, it's about 50-50 Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Oh, oh, yeah. there you go. I hadn't yeah. thought about that. Huh. Notes for my journal later. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> your, you, your memoir. You're going to want to remember that. It appears that there is a an objective split between Sasquatch and Bigfoot. Then it, it's funny too. Everywhere you go, where people talk about Sasquatch, they're like, "This is where Sasquatch. This is where the legend of Sasquatch started." It's like, well, that might be in Oregon. That might be in the Trinity Mountains in California. That might be uh, in in the uh, in the Smoky Mountains in the Redwoods, the East Coast. There, there's the one everywhere. Uh, this, it, it's like this whole notion of like. The idea of Sasquatch right here, born here. Yeah. B- Big lakes all have something too. Oh, yeah. Like a. Like a Nessie. Yeah, sure. A Loch Ness. <clears throat> oh, yeah. yeah. They talked about that when we were in Glacier a, a few weeks ago at Two Medicine Lake. There was a, a little story about a, a Loch Ness kind of creature that was supposed to be there. Now, are these are these Native American stories that have become a part of common culture, do you think? The notion of, of these sort of mythical unexplainable things where does I, that come I, from I, I don't know yeah i get i really have no idea hmm. um well we, we brought you here today not to talk about trees we brought you as an expert on bigfoot mythology that's right that's right <laughs> so i didn't know that was happening but i'm i'm now we're in it so it's, it's not <laughs> impossible that there are more like bigfoot sightings and uh, loch ness monster sightings and places with uh happy mushrooms Oh, I don't know this. Interesting. Isn't the, isn't yeah. the thing where the Nat- na- na- native uh, psychedelics? Oh, that could be a big part of it. 
there's a theory out there that says say, psychedelic mushrooms are what helped apes evolve. Now, I'm not saying that I that I support <laughs> that. I'm not saying I support Whoa, that. I'm just say, I'm just saying. I so, read that recently I, I, this too. Is, this is a this is a theory. This is a, a real theory that exists. That is, you know, quasi supported by whoever proposed the theory has inform. You know, it's not some. Well, it might be a total whack job. I don't know. But I. But anyways, it is. It is hypothesized. I gotta find that article. That sounds interesting. Yeah. 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 That and the ability to throw, huh? <laughs> Eating mushrooms and throwing things. Yeah. Think about it evolution. before 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 the ability to hurl objects that could potentially for hunting Stri- or something. strike prey yeah. and start to or even potentially establish uh, obviously physical dominance could occur before throwing things you could just pound somebody's head with a rock, with a rock or something yeah. yeah the sharp rock the tool yeah 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 i was listening uh i was listening to a podcast this morning um with sammy the bull who Oh, the guy, the former mobster that went into witness protection, then he became like a drug dealer again in Arizona when he was, that's that guy? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if he became a drug dealer. Yeah, he he was uh, incarcerated for being a member of organized crime. And yeah, yeah. And he rolled, he rolled up and was in the witness protection program, I think for a while and then something else happened. Yeah, interesting. Anyways, I was listening to him uh, and he was in solitary confinement for six and a half years. He got Ugh. he got he got outside uh, one hour a week, and otherwise he was by himself for six and a half years in the hole. Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> so, what does that do? What does that do to somebody? So he was. They were asking about that. He was talking about. Yeah, that? yeah. He talked about it. He talked about it. He says, you know, the worst time in his life, and he was talking about like uh, human deprivation. And he said uh, that he thought, you know, that kind of level of incarceration uh, made the incarcerators equal to the incarcerated in terms of that kind of sustained isolation is maybe one of the greatest forms of torture. He's like, I wish they just would have killed me instead of put me in the hole for six and a half years because it was far worse. That feels like a really long time. Six and a half. Well, and they were talking about El Chapo is in is in solitary confinement and apparently he's he's losing his mind you know like and sammy the bull was like i had to work hard to not go crazy i had to work hard to not let them break me you know mentally apparently el chapo is 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 not doing well it's slipping no i don't know i mean i can't imagine being in solitary confinement for we years we should ask and sean penn how he's years. doing can't go outside you have to eat with your hands you, you 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 use the restroom in front of somebody you are just it is just you. Yeah, that's wild. Right? Yeah. This is why I like to be risk averse. <laughs> Listen, there's 24 hours in a day. It goes very fast for me. If you had 24 hours all by yourself, alone in a room, day after day after day, do you know how slow that 24 hours would go? Very slow. That'd be crazy. No Instagram, nothing, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think they give him a fork, man. <laughs> Instagram. So you went out to Randy's the other day and yeah. took a look at some of the most recent uh, things that you brought back. What was your What was your thought on the the, the material changing? Some didn't you go? You've been going to some different places, I think. 
We explored some this year. We were in California. We're going back to California. Um, because I feel like I feel like my son is probably about to embark on another career. In fact, I, I got a line on a job for him on the North Slope if he wants it, and I think he's going to take it. Good pay. Um, I some part of me says that this is the end of his collecting tour. Mm-hmm. He's kind of reached an age where he's probably he doesn't need to, and I don't care what he does. It took me. I wasn't. I didn't find my dream job until I was 38 years old. So, um, hmm, 40, but things, there's some sort of a change going on. I don't know what it is. So I wanted to get out and do some different things. And we talked about <clears throat> what, what our plans were. And, uh, initially they were going to be for big numbers. And then over the course of the spring, and it turned out my business model was changing that changed and so then we just started it's literally week by week i could find out that it's rained in uh colorado and wyoming and this place to be again but we got blown out by dry conditions last weekend Mm -hmm. um isn't some of that like some of the places that you've gone in the past that they've burned over the years or you know, yeah. so it's like you, you've kind of been a for you're always looking for another place to explore and check out anyways. I but. am. And so we looked at a huge area of Colorado this year. I spent uh, a thousand miles over four days exploring huge set of mountain ranges and every mountain pass in, in an area of central Colorado. And I didn't find a spot that I thought was commercially feasible. I saw millions of trees, like millions. And I'm, that's probably an underestimate. <coughs> And I saw, I saw almost nothing in the right way of conditions or where I could get a permit or where you could get to easily. I mean, if you were an individual that just wanted to go on a wild mountain hike and go up to the mountain and spend the night and get two great trees and have a 20-mile hiking loop, that you could do that all day long, every day, for the rest of your life. But that's not a way to sustainably do it. Yeah, that's not a way to make a living. And honestly, that's what I, I collect trees because I love it. But at the end of the day, I still got to, if I don't do that, I'm back to building koi ponds and I don't want to do that. Or landscaping. Racing pigeons. Yeah, that, yeah. Racing pigeons. I'm not a very good race, pigeon racer. I can't compete with the truly old men. And, uh, (laughs) but if I was, and I was a good gambler, there, there are dozens of people in the country that make hundreds and thousands in the world that make their living racing pigeons. Do you think as think you get older, you'll that. move more into pigeon racing? No, <laughs> I think not. I'm not gambling. I'm holds that you're back no in attention it, from. It's kind of like I was talking to Lonnie about her uh, the exposed tower here, where you can watch the intricate workings of the computers. Computer. And I look at that and I think, huh, yeah, that's not even slightly interesting. I, that's not my world. Yeah, <laughs> I just like the sound of the pigeons, and t- I like to rear things. We were talking, you and Darlene were over the other night and she was concerned about the pigeons flying and curious about how you do different things. It's like, what do I like about this? I like rearing things. I like to see the eggs get laid, the babies hatch, see what comes from it, nurture them, take care of them, train them. I've always liked that kind of stuff. Probably why I like to feel grow. Um, 
Watch I'm not going develop. back into yeah. pigeon racing. I may never even <laughs> race pigeons again, but I will train them and I'll Listen. let them fly. And I, I like you to need watch to cut them down. Fly. You said you have over 90 right now and you <laughs> want to get back down to 30. It turns out there's 100 birds yeah, out yeah. there. This is. <laughs> oh boy. Let me just break it down for you. Okay, when I moved here in 2010, Randy had a massive pigeon coop, right? He had some sort of Himalayan peacock or something. He had, you know, like a multitude of, he had koi ponds and fish and a field and collected Yamadori and dogs and, and, <clears throat> and then, you know, like uh, that house sold and things shifted for a while and the number of living things that you were caring for dwindled. Now we're back. Now we're back. So for Randy to be like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna minimize my pigeon. No, no, he's not. It doesn't look like not that. unless he absolutely is forced to. He's gonna be racing pigeons. You mark my words. You'll be racing pigeons again. It'll happen. It's not impossible. I, there it is. There's a little bit of acknowledgement. Let's all let's all understand what's going on here. I am down to two beehives, though. Wow, I that's right. Bees. God, I ran Darlene the. Uh, I was kind of I was curious to see how you guys were going to react. I had a hive without a queen. It was just drones, and they're pretty docile. <laughs> I pull the lid off it, and I'm pulling out these frames of drones and looking at them and say, "You guys aren't allergic to bees, right?" Yeah. <laughs> As everybody's hovered over and parrying at the little bees, and yes. they're crawling everywhere. Quick question: Have you seen that movie, My Girl? No, I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> this was this was the whole thing though. Like you had all those hives, and then and you put a hive or two up here, and uh, and then I had students here some of who were allergic to bees and the number of bees here was fantastic. I mean, it was awesome. They drank the water off the moss in the bonsai containers during the summer because we watered so much. So we, in the evening time, the number of bees in the garden was profound, but it took me like a, a solid year of like having students and people being like, oh, bees, I, I don't know how I feel about that. I didn't even think like... EpiPen. Oh man, I don't have an EpiPen on site. Yeah, no, that's real. Oh, it absolutely yeah, is real. Uh, that's a big deal. Yeah. Anyways, the hives got moved. And the hives struggled up here, actually. Because the reason they were here is there's no real close water source, and bees need a lot of water. Uh-huh. And also, the nectar flow here is very short-lived. Yeah, there's not much, there's not much <clears throat> significant flowering. So, they do pretty well in the city. I've had them for about two or three years, and uh, the city apparently made it legal last October. Oh. So, now I'm in the clear. Wow. But back in the day, that was frowned upon, huh? Apparently, it was illegal. <laughs> yeah. Statue of limitations just went by. Oh, there you go. Rabbit, rabbit. You I remember it. you had in a five-gallon bucket, maybe multiple five-gallon buckets in the old house over by Sherlock's down in downtown of just honeycomb with honey all over it. You must have seen it before we, I borrowed a friend's spinner. Mm. And we ended up with five gallons of honey. I got to tell you that you can give honey away all day long to your friends and family and eat it until you're about to, you don't care about honey anymore. <laughs> and you still have four gallons. And you still have four gallons. <laughs> Nobody needs five gallons of honey. <clears throat> no, and it's it's really fairly difficult to sell. Yeah, I would imagine. I, There's you, a glut of honey out there. Yet people continue to buy it. Mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, like I, I was just... I was There's just a guy at, in Scapoose was, or something yeah, selling it. Yeah, but I was just at Sagawa's the other day, and and while buying plants, I I witnessed two people that were there to buy plants buy honey, buy local honey, and I was just like, "You're buying honey at the local nursery? Like, what? It, it just seemed like a weird thing to me, but apparently, apparently it sells. That was you the know? spot. People want that honey. Get that immunity. 
Good honey allergy is free. Good honey is a super uh, powerful homeopathic remedy, though. What do you think about a honeycomb as an accent piece in a display? Just toss that one out. That I don't know. Oh, for I don't know. For I ri- can tell you there are some exotically beautiful honeycombs, especially that come out of a hollow tree or a farm wall. Or if you don't have, if you only put nine frames in a ten frame box, they will instinctively take that little section to build their own frame rather than use what's already made, and they make some wildly beautiful colors. When it first comes out, it's delicate and it's fragrant and it's malleable and it's bright white. It's it's like, can you wow. preserve that? Uh huh. I've got a couple of pieces just from the spring laying around. When you say that, it's actually you could actually do that. There's no question. Or huh. wasp nest or something, you know? A wasp nest would be pretty rock and roll. It'd be yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Your your the display pieces that go with your trees, I think, are are some of the more fascinating display pieces I've seen in exhibitions. The 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 buffalo horns in the artisan's cup blew my mind. Yeah. I found another one. I have three now. Really? Yeah. That's freaking Imagine awesome. Imagine that. That's awesome. When you're when you're when you said you were up in the bristle cones and you found a bunch of broken arrowheads and stuff, how are you? I mean, I understand that you are very dialed into seeing patterns that would inform where artifacts would exist. Cause amongst all of these other things, you also have a fascination with native American artifacts, or at least I think you do. I do. Yeah. Uh, okay. And so when you're finding these broken arrowheads, what are you looking for? Like how, how are you taking in so much of the landscape all at once to be seeing people, nature, trees, animals? Like you're, you kind of see it all when you're out there. So the arrowheads are easy to see because they're obsidian. So it's black on an otherwise bland surface. <clears throat> so if you're used to looking for that kind of stuff, I mean, it just jumps at you. It'd be mm. like finding a, I don't know, walking through the mall and seeing a big pink shoe laying right in the middle of the walkway. Oh. Um, but probably it's just cause it's what I'm interested in. Right. Yeah. So, and I look at the ground for all manner of things. Yeah. Um, that's how we found them. And there weren't any, they were just shards two little broken pieces. What was more interesting to me was the fact that Indians were up there at 11,000 or 12,000 feet, kind of in the middle of nowhere, but there is water there. There, there are springs yep. up in there. And so invariably game things in the desert thrive on water. And so Indians are going to be around water. Well, people when, are around water. When we were up there, we were up there and the, the snow drifts prevented you from driving all the way to the Patriarch's Grove. Us too. Yeah. So then we just hiked, we just hiked to the Patriarch's Grove, you know, down that hill and back up again. I'm sure mm-hmm. the, I'm sure the snow was in the same location when you guys went right at the top of that bald knoll. Yeah, there was a little dip. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So we just we just hiked over there. But uh, you know, the general f- thought process that I had when I was there is, man, the temperature shift from Bishop in the Valley up to the Bristle Cones was pretty monumental. This Huge, is a t- twenty twenty five degree, maybe not that much, maybe fifteen twenty degree temperature shift. Uh, and to think about Native Americans, it's like, yeah, y- y- that's an awful long way to climb. But then there's these magnificent trees up there because we were like. I wonder who the first person to find this was. And it's like, well, probably it was Native Americans. And yeah. most likely that elevation change would be cooler in the hottest portions of the year if there were animals up there to be able to... Sorry. If there were animals up there to be able to hunt and sustain and <coughs> and, and water, I guess, is your, to your point. Yeah. that that 
I can't imagine another reason to be up there. They did all sorts of uh, exploring and you might've sent young bucks up there for their quests to mm-hmm. do things, but that kind of thing doesn't leave a whole lot of broken arrowheads around, which are typically shot at animals. Right. I mean, they stabbed each other, I'm sure, but you didn't go to the top of the White Mountains, shoot arrows at one another. Right. Most likely. Right. Yeah. Um, but you were right. Bishop was like 94 degrees and it was like 55 up there. Oh, so you had a look, yeah. like like 40 degree. Yeah. yeah. When it's we came crazy. down, it's like, wow, Bishop. Living in Bishop would suck, by the way. It is. I kind of, I kind of, I kind of, I kind of get with Bishop. I liked it there, but uh, but the intensity of the sun in the bristle cones, because it's the same. Yeah. You know that sun is giving you ninety five degrees down low, and it's giving you fifty five, sixty degrees up here. But you're closer. <laughs> you're closer. You to could that get sun. sunburned. <laughs> you get. <laughs> I, I realized we could get melted in the in the White Mountains, and I really realized that we could get cooked in Yosemite. Oh, for sure. Yosemite on that, just on that exposed granite as uh, it may, it was the first time seeing all of those people hiking up this landscape that I felt like we were aphids. We were like the aphids of the world. <laughs> Farming aphids Just up to these the top. soft little delicate creatures in this <laughs> granite, you know, th- the scale of which is incomprehensible. This granite landscape, human beings are so soft. In that landscape is just like, oh, yeah, wow, we get crushed, mushed, fall, you know, something falls on you, you have no, ch- you'd have no chance. You'd have no chance. Even the, even the water that looked like you could swim in, you have to believe at runoff, the current in that is going to be so strong, you have no chance in that either. Humans are fragile. 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 Delicate. Delicate, but. Delicate. But cagey. <laughs> Delicate little flowers. Delicate but strategic. <laughs> so Kyrgyzstan and then any other trips this year? I'm going uh, to Alaska to fish, fly fish for a week with my son. That's his bonus for helping me this spring. And then caribou hunt got canceled. I've got uh, a North Atlantic duck hunt in early December. Half of November is going to be in the upper Midwest chasing white-tailed deer. I've got tags for three states. I'm going to North Dakota in December. What that might be cold. And the right mind goes to North Dakota in December to chase deer with a bow and arrow. I do. <laughs> Never done it before. I'll probably have a good time and do it again and say, God damn, it's cold. Who would live up there? I feel that, like you're going to. That'd be like the opposite of living in Bishop. Where did you go that was super cold? Uh, to duck hunt Mongolia. I was in Mongolia for duck hunting. Did Those you say Russian... that was the coldest you've ever been? No, no, no. That that was actually spring time. Oh, it wasn't okay. too bad there. Oh, okay. What's Where? that black duck you have at the house? There's like a Russian duck or something. One of those. Oh, birds. that was a uh, a black grouse or a black cock. Yeah. Um, and then there was a capercaillie, which I don't know if you know, it looked like a giant turkey, but it's really just a giant grouse. Where Russia wasn't from? that cold. That was Russia, right? <clears throat> up by the White Sea. Probably never going to make it back to Russia. Mm. Probably not a lot of people are going to Russia anytime soon. I would say the travel to Russia has uh, decreased significantly. Yeah. It's fallen off. Yeah. I'm never going to make the trend. I always, one of the things I may do is the Trans-Siberian uh, run from Korea to wherever it ends up, St. Petersburg or Moscow. Apparently I understand it's cool. really boring though too, but. Oh, really? I heard it's quite the adventure, but there's probably a lot of just sitting and looking. Yeah. Yeah. 
So hang out at Lake Baikal for a while. Huh. It, it That is kind of on the list to do. What's Lake Baikal? <clears throat> I, it's a giant lake. It's one of the, the stops on the train, and a lot of people will stop and get out there for a few days. Uh-huh. It could be wrong, but I feel like it's one of the deepest lakes in the world, maybe the deepest. Wow. It's big, blue. I think Crater Lake by... Oh, really? Much bigger. Yeah, Crater yeah. Lake's supposed to be one of the deepest, right? Maybe North American. I feel like uh, deep lakes are the same thing as the origin of Sasquatch. Yeah, and, uh, I, I was Loch thinking Ness. the same thing, I feel thing like too. every freaking lake is tree. the deepest lake in the world. <laughs> there you know? is going to be a Lake Baikal monster. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I hope, they, I hope they have drawings of it and we can compare them to... All of the other, all of the other, (laughs) these freshwater creatures that have reached monumental size. It's like wishing dinosaurs still existed, which I understand that fascination. That would be pretty cool. Do you know that the wingspan of a pterodactyl, it was, was some unreasonable number? They're saying, they're saying one of these things, the the biggest is 36 feet. Okay. That's what I I was going to say. Yeah. The, the, they're, they were big. That's a, 36 feet. That there looks we go. significant. There we go. Okay. I'm back. In. I'm back in. Yeah. The scale. The scale is, it's unfathomable. If we had pterodactyls in this day and age, those would be called dragons. Probably. Yeah. Those would be called dragons. When I found that out, I went home and told Taft. I was like, hey, Taft, actually, <laughs> actually, you were correct. Dragons are real. Yeah. Turns out they Turns don't out. exist anymore, but pterodactyls should be called dragons. Yeah. The fire breathing, debatable. I don't know about, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. Do you think if you had a war, would a flying, uh, a horde of flying monkeys be better than a horde of flying pterodactyls? Ooh. Yeah, I feel like it. I, I do too. I feel like it for whatever reason. That seems like that <laughs> makes sense to me. This is very important. <laughs> <laughs> it's completely off the rails to, now. To, to get, our, get our hands wrapped around this. Well, and I think whoever created, uh, I think whoever created the Wizard of Oz felt the same way. I oh, Frank Baum. That, that a, a horde of flying monkeys was far more terrifying than a horde of flying pterodactyls because they made that choice. You know they made that choice. I'm just saying. <laughs> they could have done whatever they it wanted. It was creepy. Super creepy. I believe it's. I believe that's fiction. They could have made up whatever they that's wanted. That's exactly what I'm saying. And they thought, what would be uh, incredibly troubling and disturbing? A horde <laughs> of flying monkeys. Do your podcasts typically go sideways like this commonly? Mostly we save it for when you're here. Yeah. No, sometimes, but I, 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 I mean, I think that I think the thing about I think the thing about talking with you is you've talked about Yamadori. People know what you do, but there's all of these other things that you're busy with all the time that I personally don't know anybody else who is cultivating racing, racing pigeons and going to Kyrgyzstan and then you know uh, playing with honeycomb out of his beehives. Like you're a pretty unique, dude. Getting ready to spend my summer on the beach with my little dog mouse. Uh huh. The pug. This yeah. is the this is the third pug that I've <laughs> experienced in Rad in Randy's uh, life since I've known him. I, I like this one too. <laughs> always, always a runt, and some somehow always the best conditioned pug. I mean, you have like these super athlete pugs that were runts of the litter because <laughs> I guess they have to fend for themselves in the mo- mountains as well. I've got some good stories about her first trip to uh, Utah uh-huh. and prickly pear cactus. Oof. She didn't really have the uh, cactus avoidance by the end of the first four-day trip. Uh, so she just so, kept ste- stepping in them? Yeah. And she was they were in her lips, in her nose, oh. on her forelegs, on her belly. And her, 
And she didn't complain at all until she'd get a, a bad one in her pad. And then I'd see her kind of limping on three paws or she'd look at me. And so I put my glasses on and go over and pull the tweezers out and literally 30 to 40 cactus spines later. Now, most of them are super fine and in packs that didn't really affect her. And she just stood there and took it. And now she is a cactus pro. Oh. She can bound through <laughs> the sagebrush and see them coming and avoid them in midair. It's it's pretty cool to watch. Her biggest problem was she can't slow down, right? She's uh-huh. still, she's nine months old. She's got puppy tendency. She goes everywhere, full bore. So she'd be running through the brush and all of a sudden she's midair and there's a patch of cactus. It's like, you are screwed. Little dog. <laughs> you're, going, you're going in. <laughs> you're going in. She only weighs like a, a half a pound though. So that also helps her a lot. She's... I, I guarantee I'm old, and so I overestimate the weight of everything, but I think she's a solid 10 pounds. <laughs> it's hilarious. The fact that you were like, I don't know, having her in the mountains, if an eagle sees her, I might not be able to save her. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> dog, so, dog getting carried away by an eagle. <laughs> I, I was worried about the eagle, and then I wasn't. I Out at the farm one day, a couple, three months ago, an eagle flew up and landed in the tree and screeched. It was about 50 feet from her, and they don't normally screech. And we look down and it's like, oh, she just screeched at the dog. And they thought, but nothing screeches at its prey. Yeah. So I don't really know what was going on, but she was only about six pounds in. And I thought, oh, that'd be bad. Even if it couldn't fly with her, the talons go right through her. Yeah. And I thought, she's okay with that. I just have to worry about, there's a coyote out there that's hunting by day. And I let her run wild at the farm. And a coyote would definitely just grab her up and take her away and yeah. eat her. Um, but then on the last trip, I saw a pair of golden eagles on a baby sheep that they, I don't know if they, they probably didn't kill. They probably found it dead. But I was looking at that thinking, oh, yeah, I should, I should keep an eye on her in the mountains because golden eagles are big. Golden eagles are huge. And it's like, yeah, they, they might still get her. And it's funny because we'll be out collecting and she, she doesn't know to be afraid. She'll be a hundred yards away exploring, just like Poppy used to do when she was young. Um. Anyway, that's wow. a long way of saying she, uh, I taught her to swim last week. She's not all in on that yet, but she will be. <laughs> she what can use she? her legs pretty well, and she is a rapid swimmer. Puppy used to go like this, but she was a little bit pudgy, so she floated. She's buoyant. <laughs> mouse, mouse is not a floater. Right. That is so funny. You know, it's funny is that you you go do all of these rugged things and you pick one of the smaller dog breeds to go with you. <laughs> you don't have a lab. You don't have a, a whatever, you know, German shepherd. Dog, yeah. yeah, you don't have a... Pyrenees. Yeah. Uh, I like big dogs, but they're more work and effort. You know, half of the year we're wet and muddy here and a big dog jumps in your truck and everything's wet and muddy. Yeah. She doesn't muck things up as bad. Uh-huh. Um, think, and she gets around really well. The first couple, the first trip, she wouldn't go down a three-foot, 45-degree incline on a rock. She was afraid. Now, now sometimes I have to be careful. I have to call her back because she's getting into a danger zone thinking she can do whatever. Uh-huh. She hasn't taken any good tumbles yet. She she can only jump about two feet, though. She's not a good high jumper yet. Huh. But she'll learn. Like the other dogs, she'll go 100 yards out of her way to go around a cliff edge rather than come down through four feet. Um, and she didn't keep it by a snake this spring. There were a couple days that were snaky days, and uh, we left her in the truck. You've never been bit by a snake, have you? I haven't. 
I worry about a little dog mostly not dying, but maybe if it could lose an eye. Yeah. And then it feels like a one-eye pirate dog. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Just embarrassing. That, that's, <clears throat> yeah, that's interesting. I don't know if it changes. I don't know how much the change to a, from a pug to a one-eyed pug shifts really perceptions of, of the manliness of, of your... Of your dog. I'll just get one of those little fake hummingbird ornaments and wire it to her collar. Totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Doctors have to look like a little parrot. Oh, man. Yeah. And Reddy takes another beating in a Wyoming truck stop. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> let, let me let me shift gears on you because I, I had a question I wanted to ask you after watching you walk around this morning a little bit. Um Do you walk around the garden here, which so many of these trees are trees that you collected? What is that experience like? Because you've seen them go the whole journey. You know, you saw them on the mountain. You saw them in recovery at your place. Maybe some of them came here right away. And now you look around and see some of these trees that have just turned into just epic, epic bones out here in North America. What some of I, them are some of them are yours still. <clears throat> what do I think? Um, so again, I'm jaded. I can. L- Basically, I can come up here anytime I want and wander through what I think is one of the best collections probably in the world and certainly in North America. It's not the biggest, but as far as variety and exoticness of conifers especially, and more and more deciduous. um, Wow, I I take it for granted. You probably do too. Yeah. But all you got to do is go to some other place and see what people are looking at in a show, and I... Typically in those situations, I look at it and I think, oh, and I know better than to say anything because it's like, that would just be rude and and wrong. Um, But when I walked through this place, you know, Ryan was just telling me the other day that the health is back and it's kind of turned a corner with the heat and things had to look kind of rugged. I thought things looked pretty good today. Yeah. I did. There's a couple sections I know that are more despair. Yep. But in this upper section- um, I was wandering through the new layout and once I get over the idea of the, the problem with getting a hose through all that, <laughs> cause I mean, ultimately, you know, it's like, oh, I like, I like to change and I, I like change. I'm, I don't always embrace it, but I try to, um, but what I like to see, what I like to see up here is what I would call <clears throat> The bones of the trees, which is always what attracts me to bonsai. You know, I and I've mentioned this multiple times before. I know you need a good canopy in general for a show, but ponderosas are my favorite because no matter how thick you make it, you can still look through and see the bones. Yeah. And that that's where the true value and beauty of a bonsai come for me is to see movement, exaggerated movement, unlikely movement, movement that has nothing to do with subtle general S curves. Yeah. And uh, I like the way that Ryan takes branch U, take branches that in general, other people would cut off or say were too long or too awkward or didn't fit the standard bonsai model and turn them into something that works with the tree, enhances the frame, Mm -hmm. let's say. Mm -hmm. And you can, you're doing, focusing more and more on what I think you call bonsai in the wild. Uh, if you walk through my yard and you were just there, you'll see that most of my trees have less, not a lot of wiring on them. I wire some and I, and I like to bend stuff and make them around, but I, I, it's all about the branches for me. The foliage is 
just the, the fluff on the edge. Um, I, I see that, but I more that I see abs, what I would call like the green waterfall, that negative space on a tree. Um, when I look at a tree from 10 or 50 feet away, I'm always looking at the trunk, the trunk line and the, the important branches. And I, I don't really focus on, we were talking about fronts earlier. I know there's a front to every tree, but I, I seldom focus on that. Um, and I look at the foliage as like an afterthought. That's kind of like an abstract painting or an old scroll, you know, Chinese scroll where you've got basically a framework and little touches of green here and there to signify that there's, it's a live tree. Yeah. I see trees that way. And I, so when I come here, I, I just because of the, the layout, you're much closer to the trees. So I almost never pay attention to the foliage. I look at the trunk and then I kind of step back to look at the health. And so today I was looking at the health of the tree to see how things were changing. And uh, I was talking to Troy and Troy said, the, he says, we're not getting a lot of growth, but the color, I see better color. And when I looked up here, things looked healthy. Yeah. And then he talked to Bill Velarde, who I haven't seen in a while and looked at all the ongoing changes because I haven't wandered around here for a month. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't usually walk through the whole garden. I just will pick a section and walk through it. And sometimes I'll look at it for a specific tree or this or that. And, and I'll look at a tree and I wonder, is that mine? That might be mine. Hell, I don't remember. <laughs> 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 um, but I also like that you you can walk down a bench and see six different species and 14 different styles. Yeah. Long, thin, tall, muscular bound bark. <clears throat> um, that's what I see. And I'm, it, it always, of course, makes me happy to see trees that I was involved with. I mean, I wouldn't be doing this, what I do, if, if I didn't want some legacies. I don't like legacy as a term, but I like seeing trees that have a future and I'm just not sending them off to die. Yeah. You and I, you were particularly concerned about this when you first came back from Japan about selling trees. And I don't know if I should sell it to them because I just know it's going to become, it's, it's going to deteriorate. It's, it's going to die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I remember at the time thinking, if you're in the tree selling business or if you sell things, yeah, you're going to have to come to your own peace with that. And that's different for everybody. And it can, it, that can vacillate by quality of the tree too. Sure. Sure. Little trees we care less about, inexpensive starter trees. Yep. A procumbens juniper. Yeah. You know, there's a hundred thousand more in the field somewhere. Sure. But you collect a. Uh, and I don't look at trees that age doesn't matter that much to me in a tree either. Uh, every now and again, you get a real old one. It's like, wow, that that is really an old tree. But you'll just find a tree that is like last year. You got a couple. It's like. Okay, that's rare. I haven't even seen anything on the mountain like that in a while. And, I, and two yep. in one year, and they came out great. Uh, this year, I haven't seen another one like it. Yep. So those kind of trees, even I would be bummed to know that here that later on it had gone to a good home and then died. It's like, oh. Yeah. Now, having said that, I don't think there's any shortage of good trees out there. I just think there's a shortage. There will be or could be a shortage of accessible trees, which then brings up the idea of what's accessible. Yeah. A half a mile, 200 yards, two miles. Two miles, though, two miles is 
you can get to within two miles of mil- hundreds of thousands of good bonsai. There's a lot out there. And I was just, we've talked about this before too. I was just reawakened to central Colorado specifically about, I recently had uh, a year, I'm on a tangent, a year or so ago, I had a conversation with some officials and they were saying, how can you keep going back to these places and find all this stuff? Do you think trees are ever going to run out? It's like, uh, no, not really, unless you went out and collected every single tree on the mountain. But I know I've mentioned this also, the the better your eye gets and the better your collecting skills get, you can go back to the same spot and find great trees. Like, how did I not know that as a bonsai? Or how was I unable to collect that? Yeah, walked right. by it last year or whatever. Yeah, and typically it's a three to a five year span, but you walk back and say, huh, I just got a truckload of trees that I didn't think anything about. And clearly I had to have seen them because my, uh, my, my spotting skills have always been good finding trees, but it's like, wow, you know, and that's just a maturation process of being seen more and being continuing to be observant and interested in things. Um, so the officials were saying, aren't the trees going to run out and said, not really people. If you can drive right to a spot, a parking lot, and the tree's right there, mm-hmm. yeah, people are going to collect stuff out cl- close. But you get a half a mile uphill, 50, maybe 70% of the people are out. You get two miles, even on relatively common ground, 95% of the people are out. We've had this conversation, too, about there's, there's a lot more individuals out there collecting and making collections and stuff. But no more professional collectors have come on the scene, and some of the ones that were out there have faded already. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've had students that came out to do trips, and you help them. I help them a little bit and say, "I'll oh, do this, try that." Nobody ever makes a second trip. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's I forget how difficult it is, and I kind of like my being unimpressed by the physical structure of a bristle cone. I'm impressed by the age and their tenacity for life. And so there's a certain reverence that overcomes you when you're in something that has managed to eke out a living in harsh conditions for 4,000 years. How could you not be moved by that? Yeah. But physically they don't compare to, you know, one mountain range away in 60 miles to a 400 year old Sierra that looks like it's significantly older than the bristle cones you just looked at. So, but what what does take things out are is fire. Uh-huh. And we were just talking about mm-hmm. year two, almost two years ago, hundred square mile fire burned out my best Engelman spot. Yeah. And uh, so I collected a lot of trees out of there, but I didn't collect two million, and I didn't lay waste to entire things. Now it is nature, and it it did need to happen, and it is the ecosystem. But in the bones eye world, people, our impact is relatively small except in easily accessible, significant, well-known spots. Yeah. If you can drive to it and you can see it from the side of the road, it's going to get some action. Yep. But yep. you could say that about most of human activity. Yeah. America is still huge. You ever look out your window and you fly across the United States? Sure. It's big. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's big and still, I think, in that like vast landscape of North America, there are still species that are perfectly suitable for bonsai that have never been collected you know so like 
at some point say, and, the, and, it, and it's interesting watching North American bonsai and seeing sort of the, the trends change in North American bonsai in a very short period of time, because I always kind of marveled at like, the first time I went to Japan was in the early 2000s when I met Mr. Kimura to repre- request my apprenticeship. But at, at that time, we went down to Shikoku and Takamatsu, where you and I went to see Daizo Iwasaki's place. Mm-hmm. And at that time in early 2000s, there were fields of cork bark black pine that were being bulldozed. Like I saw them being bulldozed, you know, and these trees that in North America were just like, oh my gosh, how could they ever bulldoze that? But they had been growing cork bark black pine based on a trend for 40, 50, 60 years in the ground, and everybody learned 60 years later, oh, these things are a pain in the ass. They turn out looking funky. uh, They're weak. They die easily after you put all this effort in, and and it was more valuable to burn them and start over than it was to try and do something with them. I'm not saying that's that's what's happening in the trend in North America, but I thought that was really interesting to see that, and then to see the, the rage of Itoi Gawa as a juniper foliage, which will which will come and go in Japan as a trend in bonsai and thinking about, man, we had this kind of Yamadori boom and then Yamadori has, has really settled in as a, as a integral consistent. It's not the new kid on the block now, 12 years, 20 more accessible you know, 12 years later. It's, 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 it's being used. There's knowledge around it. There's great uh, results from the use of Yamadori and there is, you were talking about this sort of the trend of people that are always chasing the new whatever on the block, you mm-hmm. know, like there's, there is a general, I think, tendency in our culture to always be chasing something new. Maybe it's universal across other cultures as well. But uh, <clears throat> that's really where I think there's probably a continual opportunity because, listen, uh, you know, sagebrush exists widely across the Western United States. Nobody's ever cared about it really as a bone-sized subject before, but it turns out it's pretty awesome, and now you're finding sagebrush with rock-hard, solid wood. Like, Yeah, I, I just showed you those I've yesterday. Ne- it's like, wow, I've never seen this. that before. I've never seen sagebrush that has deadwood as, as seemingly as hard as a Rocky Mountain juniper. That was that was wild. Well, that's interesting. That helpful, useful. <laughs> oh, man, that's because it, it makes it, it a long term. It, it takes project. away the it takes away the limited time frame of the sagebrush. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's like, you know, greasewood and mahoganies and all of these things that still exist out there. There's things that we don't know that we could be using that are going to be fantastic, just like finding this ancient tree in Chile that's existed for 5000 years. And it's just made sort of mainstream media that there's <clears throat> there there as as a true collector you're you're sort of spanning the western united states i feel like there will always be uh always be something worthy for for bonsai you know i really do so yesterday i was just i'd heard an anecdote about lodgepole pines not being really acceptable in california because they don't have bark mm. that you collect that you grow have a bonsai a pine bonsai for its bark and i remember at the time to recently looking at that saying that's nearly a flawless tree it's a little bit simple with its s curves but it's got more foliage than it needs it's got bark it's got taper it's got a little pocket root that it's like short needles that there's an unending market for that mm-hmm. just not in this location and that's maybe because it's common and people don't like common you know it's i remember marco in bernizzi once told me about uh bonsai trees 
15 years ago, he said, people want what they can't have. And when he said it, I knew it was right. And it, it's still, it'll always be true. Yeah. There's an acronym for kids. What, what is it? You don't want to be the last one to know something. It's like one of the reasons people look at their cell phone so commonly. Oh, is it? Is oh, that, FOMO. Is, FOMO. Fear, fear of missing, missing out. out. Yeah. Oh. Missing out on a trend or the new tree or this or that. And it's like, if anything becomes too common, the cork bark pines. It's lost its value. Yeah, it loses loses everything. Yeah. So I don't anticipate that Yamadori are ever going to be good. Yamadori ever going to be too common? No, 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 no. no. That, and, and I actually think there, there there's maybe more of a demand now because it's it's sort of settled in as a you could always sell a Japanese maple, you can always sell a Japanese black pine. I think you can always sell a good a good Yamadori. I think it's settled in in that way in terms of the American bonsai ecosystem there's enough knowledge around it now there's enough success around it now there's enough technique around handling them to maximize these native trees that we have that you're starting that they are just becoming a seamless integration into the 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 perception of bonsai at least as far as the hardcore bonsai community is concerned and then you know the perpetuation of that is is there's always that new thing out there so it's like the best of both worlds to a significant degree the ability to keep them alive and healthy long term that that's going to have to be this one of the, the single or not single one of the overriding factors because we've had this conversation to what happened to all the trees were collected in the 50s through the 70s yep they're gone but so are all the japanese imports it was just the nature of the hobby it was the learning curve is what it's the that's the you know it's like you look at european bonsai now and where are all the famous old Scots pine? Not many of them exist, but certainly there's success with the new, with the more recent ones. You know, there's an understanding of the narrative arc of the technique of the working of the horticulture. It the learning curve, man. You know that there was some fantastic stuff that was lost in the learning curve, like things that will never be. I mean, I know for a fact at Mariah, there's been things I'll never get again that were lost in the learning curve. The heat last year. <clears throat> you know, it's like it's it, a brutal. It, that's brutal. <laughs> no, a tough lesson. It's just just tough circumstances. You know, tough circumstances. It it is a a weak point in th living things. Yeah, yeah. Everything that potentially has a pull date. <clears throat> it's just upsetting when uh, when it happens, especially when it happens on your watch. I guess, you know, like that's the, that's one of the burdens that we take on is it's like you try to do your best to be responsible and respectful and it's, it's not always going to work out. That, that's, I had a lot of interesting, I've had this conversation with my son all along trying to teach him the business. I don't know that he'll ever do it, <clears throat> but say that tree's not coming, coming out. Don't, don't even bother. He's, he'd be getting ready to, uh put a pry and say, don't bother. Mm -hmm. Why not? Because of this, this, and this. And uh, you're wasting time. Why, you know. Yeah. Um, but trying to teach, and what's the right term for it? You always push harder for the best trees because it's tougher to leave a great tree on the mountain that wiggles a little bit, probably doesn't have enough fruit and so on this last trip, for instance, it was very dry back there. And we found a hillside that's like, we can go back in the fall because these are going to be, it's too dry. They've got tiny roots. It's plenty, but not when the roots are dry. Yeah. When it's moist in the fall, and then we can double down and put them on the heat bed, we'll have astronomical success. 
just patience. Yeah. Walk away from, and I think I told you about in California, I saw a juniper that somebody had put a tie strap on 40 feet from the road and just pulled it out, hoping for the best. Left it there. It was the size of a big box. And you could see where they'd taken the time to put the the rocks back in place that had been dislodged by that taproot. But they just left a dead tree there. You know, it, it's just horrible. Yeah, that's tough. Um, and then the other thing was uh, trying to, as, this was the toughest thing teaching him now is the difference between odd good and odd bad. You look at a tree and it's like, that's a great tree except for here. And that one little piece of odd bad makes that a no-go. You know, if that wasn't there, this would be a sure thing. Mm-hmm. But we're not in the grafting business. And we're not in the air layering business. And that's just the value nonsensical. System. Yeah. yeah. There's a limited amount of time. Um, it could work if that was your passion, but not mine. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I've tried that in the past and it's just not my interest. Yeah. It, it could be in the skill set. It's just not what I'm interested in. Yep. Yep. So anyway. Like the paperwork. <laughs> you need to have it here by Friday at That's five right. o'clock. You gotta graph this thing by the end of the spring, or you are shit out of luck for another year. And you're like, <laughs> the anxiety of it takes the 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 pleasure out of it. I, I have a little bit of that, but dude, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for coming up. Yeah, I, hopefully it's interesting. I always have fun. Yeah, yeah thanks. Feels really. like we come up to talk about nothing, but uh, yeah, I'm usually up for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think we've ever had an agenda. We don't want to have an agenda. That's that would be irresponsible. I mean, we never would have known about Sasquatch uh, and your proximity to Sasquatch with a with an agenda. I can tell you that if I ever find one, and and if I'm hunting, I'm gonna have me a Sasquatch. Are just, you? Just get a really blurry picture. Those seem to do well. The yeah. best. Start my own reality TV series. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And and you can take people on trips to find that Sasquatch. Oh my God! Yeah. Look at that. Mm-hmm. When they get old and crippled, I'll leave. Bigfoot tours. Yep, racing pigeons and Bigfoot tours. That's what's in your future. <laughs> <laughs> I'll look for high inclines so we can fly to the top of the mountain in the helicopter and just amble our way down. Absolutely. Absolutely. Have lunch delivered by Amazon <laughs> somewhere in the way. <laughs> Get out of here. Good to talk to Thanks, you, man. man. See you guys.